Crosspoint Community Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. So this morning, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 15. And uh, so if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Mark chapter 15. And um, we pick up from where we left off last week. Uh, one of the things that we probably are all very aware of uh, as we look at the world around us, we, we see that we live very much in a culture of threat. Um, we kind of live in a culture where there's just consistent threat. Um, if you're on social media at all, or how about the, does anybody have the next door app on their phone and they look at it? Okay, if one more person says, I heard a noise, I think it was a gunshot, I'm gonna shoot them. I just can't do this anymore. Like, I can't take it. Like, Sherry made me take that app off my phone. I can't look at it because I don't care about the ducks, I don't care about the lost dogs, and I don't care about the gunshots. I'm done. But it's just like everything, <laughs> everything is threatening around us. And, and, and we, we tend to live from a perspective of either fighting those threats or running away from those threats, whether they be political, whether they be social, whether they be economic, moral, health, uh, information, whatever it is, we, we tend to have some kind of stance when, when we, we face those threats. And I wanna reframe that because I think, I think there's something that is redeemable about living in a culture of threat. I think it maybe connects us and helps us understand a little bit about what was going on in the first century, even in our text today, because, because Jesus riding into Jerusalem on the back of, of a colt, a donkey, was threatening to every single person in Jerusalem. Be, be, because the gospel is the most threatening thing to Western culture, and it will cost me severely if I'm going to be true to the gospel of Jesus. That's, that's the reality. And even as Christians, it's not Jesus is threatening in a way that he's, that he, that he's out to hurt us, but it's threatening in the sense that, that my kingdom is threatened in the face of the true gospel. It means I don't get to make the decisions that I might feel compelled to make. It means that, that, that the kingdom that I'm building cannot be my kingdom and from me. It has to fit into the kingdom of God. And so it means that, that anyone who has power or authority, Jesus is threatening to. Anyone who wants to be autonomous, Jesus is a threat to. And, and, and so, so it's just, it's, when you look again at our culture, the, the good news about what's wrong with us is offensive, it's unacceptable, and it's oppressive. I mean, I mean our, our culture is more and more saying that not only is that, is that offensive, but they're, they're, our culture is about, I mean, we're on the verge of saying that, that to say that there's something wrong with me is evil. And, 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 and Jesus, his call to us to discipleship is a threat to us because it is deny yourself and take up your cross. And none of us want that. That's what Jesus calls us to. And here's the thing, I think if you are not threatened by Jesus and the gospel, then you, you, might, not be, you might not be actually taking him seriously. If Jesus and the gospel is not necessarily threatening to your way of life, your experience, the question is, are we taking him seriously? I mean, think about this, if, if we believe if we believe what Jesus says about hell, if we believe what Jesus says about, about people who, who have not been forgiven, who are, who are dead in sin and the reality of hell, then why do we spend all, like probably at least 90% of our time with Christians? If we believed what Jesus said about hell, I'm not sure if we should be spending, I should be spending all my time with believers. It seems like there's something important out there and there's something life and death. Instead, we tend to take that slightly easier road and we, we choose to try and legislate morality and think that that will draw people to Jesus, which we've all seen, whether we want to admit it or not, that doesn't work. It, it's never worked. And, and so, and so in, in Mark 15, there, there's a shift, in, and, I, and I, there's a shift in Mark 15 in title 
of Jesus. And I think it's, it's, it's significant because of what it tells us about ourselves. And, and I think it's critical to our life as disciples. And so Mark chapter 15, starting in verse one, we pick up from last week where we, where we had the kind of the dual scenes of Jesus up in, in the room with the, the chief priests and, 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 the, and the Sanhedrin. And, and then lower below that, you have, you have Peter in the courtyard happening at the same time. And then, and then the, 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 the religious leaders decide that Jesus must be put to death. And so we pick up in verse one of 15, it says, and as soon as it was morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. You see, the problem that Jesus presents is that Jesus is a threat to everyone who has and wants authority. His kingdom message was a threat to all of those groups that he, that he ran into. For example, the Pharisees, their, their kind of mindset was, if we can get people to behave, we could bring in the kingdom of God. Their goal, their, their approach to their agenda was the kingdom of God would show up when enough people obeyed the law. That's why the Pharisees took 10 laws and made them into 613 so that people would be more moral and that morality, that as people increased their morality and more people behaved, that would bring in the kingdom of God. But Jesus said to them early on that the kingdom is already here, which was a huge threat to the Pharisees because everybody wasn't moral. So if the kingdom's already here and it's not the way we're planning on bringing it in, then where does that leave us? And then the, the, the Sadducees were, were actually different. And, and they were far more secular because they, they ran the temple. The, the, they were the establishment. See, the Pharisees were out in the villages in, 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 in the different synagogues, and, and yet the Sadducees, they were at headquarters. And in order to keep their authority and their systems intact, when, when the, you know, the Israel was just kind of handed from, from world power to world power to world power. And so in order for them to keep their authority and their systems intact, they had to make a deal with Rome so that, so that Rome would let them continue to do their thing. And they were able to do that as long as Rome was happy. And so Jesus' announcement of the kingdom of God is a threat to the to the kingdom of Rome in that somewhat tense peace that was, was that fragile peace that was made with Rome. Rome itself, that's, that's different from the others because, because Rome was about its own kingdom and no other kingdom can be viable, no other kingdom can stand. And so, so any other agenda, any other kingdom was unacceptable. So really the Pharisees were about morality producing righteousness. The Sadducees were about holding on to the system that made them great, and Rome was about not being told by anyone else what to do. Isn't it interesting how we can probably fit into one of those categories pretty easily the way we are naturally bent? Like some of us feel like we can bring righteousness through morality. Some of us want to hold on to the things that, that made much of us. And then others, just nothing, no one, nothing else matters. It's just what I want. So whether they realize it or not, all of these groups wanted Jesus gone because the kingdom of God, he represented, threatened to change everything. Verse two. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you've said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things, and Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for, for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release 
for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with the man they call king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged, beaten Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Here's the big shift that happens in Mark 15. Up to this point, Jesus has been thought to maybe be the Messiah. He's been called the Christ, the Son of Man, Son of God, all of those terms. But we shift in Mark 15, and even six times in the passage we look at today, Jesus is called King of the Jews. Because you see, a king is a threat to anyone who wants authority or who has authority by their very nature. A savior is only relevant to those who see their, themselves in need. So really, Jesus' savior is far easier to deal with than Jesus' king. Because Jesus is savior, you only need Jesus if you see that you have a need. If you don't have a need, then Jesus is irrelevant as savior. But Jesus as king, that affects everyone. There's no one who's not affected by Jesus as king because a king has an agenda and a kingdom and you have to fit into that. And, and so, so we see that, that, that it makes kind of uh, narrative sense that Christ is called king because it's a much bigger issue for Rome than Christ as Messiah or the Son of Man or the Christ because they didn't care about those things because those were just Jewish religion issues. But for Mark, more importantly, the kingship of Jesus becomes the focal theme for the rest of the gospel. And, and as, as, we, as we read in the text today, Jesus is referred to as king in a mocking, inappropriate way. But, but those inappropriate charges and the mocking of Jesus' title on the surface seems to reveal his defeat. But in reality, Jesus does enter into his true kingship, paradoxically, enthroned on a cross. The cross is Jesus' throne that he sits on and receives his true kingship. I mean, if there's a joke there, it's, it's on those who thought they had the upper hand and they were winning. And so, and so Pilate, as we read, has this conversation, well, kind of, it's a one, fairly one-sided conversation with Jesus. And so Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, you have said so. And, and then, and then, Pilate, and we see that Pilate kind of has some questions about the religious leaders. He sees them as being jealous of Jesus, and they think that they're having some issues, and they kind of see the power play that they're doing. And, and so, so Pilate asks Jesus again, and Jesus doesn't answer. And it seems like had Jesus claimed innocence, he may have swayed Pilate, and it's possible that he wouldn't have been crucified. Yet, again, Jesus chooses not to take the opportunity to influence toward his advantage. He models self-denial and taking up his cross as he's called his disciples to do. And, and, so, and, so, here, and so here, it's interesting as, as this like one-sided conversation between Jesus and Pilate, notice that Jesus doesn't say much. In fact, he's primarily just silent, which I think it's, it's, it's beneficial for us to, to take just a second and pause and, and recognize this, because Jesus, it seems, has already said everything that needs to be said. All the important words were spoken, and I think it's something for us to think about to maybe consider less words and only use the important ones. Because we tend to think that everybody has to know what we think about everything. And we spend all day letting people know those things. Maybe we should take a page out of Jesus' book and only say what's important. Say the things that, that are important to say and realizing that maybe, just maybe, not everyone has to hear how I weigh into every possible 
issue. And so then Pilate says, all right, well, I'll do this. I, I release a prisoner at this time of year. And, and so, so who do you want released? I, I've got this guy Barabbas in prison. We could release him or Jesus. And so it's interesting because Barabbas was kind of, uh, he, was, he, was, he, was, he led this insurrection. And so, and so I don't know if it was, it was a, a, I don't know if, a, if, if Pilate wasn't thinking this through, but here Barabbas is in prison for leading people against Rome. So Barabbas is this freedom fighter and Jesus appears to be this pacifist. And so when it comes down to it, as an Israelite in Jerusalem that day, who do you want Pilate to release for your people? The patriot freedom fighter Barabbas or this pacifist Jesus who you're hoping would overthrow Rome, but he's done nothing of the like. It seems pretty clearly that they would have picked Barabbas because Jesus isn't gonna do anything for him. And, and, so, and so they pick Barabbas and Pilate says, what do you want me to do with Jesus? And the crowd says, actually what, what Pilate says is, what do you want me to do with your king of the Jews? And, and, and the people being egged on by the religious leaders cry out, crucify him. It's not a Jewish method of, of death penalty, but it's acceptable because it, it meets their end game. It gets rid of Jesus. So here's an interesting question that we have to wrestle with this morning. What does human nature do when faced with a king? What does human nature do when faced with a king? Um, when faced with a king, does human nature submit willingly? Not really. I mean, willingly is, they might submit, but not willingly. Uh, how about um, accept kingship as long as the king leaves me alone, which is kind of a false answer because, because by the nature of being king, they don't leave you alone. You have to do what they say. Th their decree is everything, and you need to follow the king. You can't, they're not gonna leave you alone. Or this, crucify the king in self-defense if you have the chance. Every single time, human nature will crucify a king. And when we look at the crowd and we see what's going on there, it is easy for us, just like last week with Peter, to say, oh man, I, I don't think I would do that. But here's the thing, we crucify Jesus every day as king. We might love Jesus as savior, but how often do you disobey Jesus as king? We need to think that through a little bit. Verse 16, the text continues and it says, and the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and, and they called together the whole battalion and they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him and they began to salute him, hail king of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him and the inscription of the charge against him read the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right, one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, ah, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from that cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him one to another saying, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And, 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 so, and so here, the true mission of Jesus to be king, to replace the temple, and, and to be savior of, of humanity 
He, he's, he's just simply being mocked and he's being, that the title that he carries, and he's being jided and, 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 and made fun of. And it's interesting, even here we've got Simon who, who is told by the soldiers to, to, to help Jesus with his cross, which, which later we, we hear about Simon in the early church. But at that point, this isn't necessarily Simon literally becoming a follower of Jesus, but it is a pretty striking illustration of the costly identification with the suffering Messiah that Jesus earlier predicted about those who follow him. And, 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 so, and so here, we, we come to the question which is so important. What do we do with King Jesus? Jesus is referred to as King of the Jews, King of Israel, and, and we know that Jesus is, is King of humanity. So do we crucify Jesus or do we submit to him? Jesus, in, in the crucifixion and the resurrection and his ascension, he disarmed or made spectacles of, and he triumphed over all spiritual powers there at the cross. That's what Paul says in Colossians 2.15. And so humanity has new life, a life never subject to eternal separation and death through Jesus at the cross. So he's done that. That's finished. He is king. It's like that old Bill and Gloria Gaither song, kings and kingdoms will all pass away. But there's something about the name of Jesus. There's something eternal and kingly and universal. So, so, so here's the question that we have to wrestle with. If, if Jesus did all of this, if that's true, with so much in our culture, with so much church saturation, so much Bible reading, so many resources, so much prayer, how do we constantly fail to live in victory over sin and lack the love and the joy that God says will characterize those who've been redeemed and follow Jesus? John Piper was asked a question very similar. He was asked once, what causes him to question the veracity of Scripture? In other words, what causes you to question that Scripture is even true? And he answered really quickly, which is almost disturbing. And he responded something like this. He said, it's that the Bible constantly talks about the transformative work of the Spirit, and yet when I look around at the church or even my own life, I don't see that kind of radical transformation that empowers us to obey. Andrew Murray was, was actually asked that exact question. And he said, one of the most important answers to this question, undoubtedly, is that we do not know what it is to die to ourselves and to the world. Exactly what Jesus calls us into when he calls us into discipleship, to follow him. Jesus says, I want you to deny yourself, I want you to take up your cross, and I want you to follow me. And I think when it comes down to it, we love Jesus as Savior. But, but I don't know what the percentage is, but we more often reject him as king. Self-denial and taking up our cross is something that either we don't know how to do it or we just choose not to do it in order to become disciples on Jesus' terms. What's interesting is that we live in a culture, in a context where we can follow Jesus but reject him as king. And, and I don't mean that, that that's a biblical statement. I mean that is a practical statement. We make choices. Which is why, for me, that the desire to connect with and understand the global church is so important because you see, our experience, we have all of this freedom and flexibility and we apply that to our relationship with Jesus, but there are those who can't do that. And if you, if you watched the last couple nights or if you've watched it beforehand, uh, Sheep Among Wolves, about the story about the underground church in Iran, you see an example of a people who have to recognize Jesus as king. They don't have any choice. 
This morning, we're super privileged to have uh, a friend, um, Steve Trevino, with us. Um, and he was actually involved, he's been involved with the Iranian church for 10 years, um, working with the very believers who were giving testimony in that film. And I wanna invite Steve up. And uh, I want, and he's gonna share a bit uh, about the, uh, the, the church and what's going on in Iran. And uh, I believe God has given him um, a, significant, a significant message for our church this morning. Thank you. Welcome. <laughs> Great to be here. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah, so I got to meet Steve, uh, I don't know, maybe if, see, I don't have any concept of time, but maybe a month or seven months ago, I don't know. Um, it's within the last couple months, I believe. Uh, but anyway, God just kind of, uh, in a really cool way, brought our paths together, and uh, he, he's here, and, and, I, and I wanted to ask him to share a little bit about kind of what God's doing. So, so kind of tell us a little bit about yourself. And, thank and you, thank you so much. Hey, heart. it really is an incredible privilege to be here with you guys, especially because you know this is the first time I understand that uh, you're meeting again in this building. So what an honor you know, to, uh, to, to be a part of that with you. And uh, I get to be here with my wife, Julie. Say hi, Julie. And uh, wife of 26 years, amazing mom, amazing um, just she loves Jesus like she is a friend of God, and I'm so grateful. Can, husbands, can we give it up for wives that we do not deserve? Can we just thank God? <laughs> I heard a guy over here. He gets it. He he's scored some points there. Um, yes, so I have been involved with the underground church for over a decade, and I'm, I'm not Iranian, although I, I do get... Um, uh, mistaken for being Iranian all the time. Uh, I'm actually Mexican-American, and I live in Texas. But when I travel the world, people think I'm Northern Indian. Hmm. So I get that a lot. So, you know, I'm just the run-of-the-mill Mexican-American who lives in Texas, who looks like he's Northern Indian, who hangs out with Iranians. <laughs> so, you know, uh, the Lord has uh, just... He is doing amazing things in the Middle East. I used to say that the underground church is the greatest thing that no one cares about. Hmm. But I've stopped saying that. Hmm. And really what I say now is it's the greatest thing that just no one thinks about. Hmm. And so it's, it's a privilege for me that I get to travel uh, you know, across America, meet with churches, meet with pastors, leadership teams, and I get to tell the story of the underground church and what God is doing. And uh, I'm so encouraged by, especially within the past year, how this conversation has opened up. Yeah. Yeah, that's really cool. I mean, I think about how how much we have struggled in the last year to figure out what to do. Um, really, and if you, if you put it into the context, it really hasn't been that big of a deal in a sense, comparatively to what those in the underground church in Iran have, have faced for, for years. And, and, it, and yeah, I mean, just kinda um, thinking about uh, your connection with those people, um, you know what? What do you, you know? What do you see as as, as even being pastoring and, and that kind of stuff here and and that connection to those? Like you know, what are you learning from them and and, and being taught by them? I, I tell my my Iranian friends all the time. I say you guys make it hard to pastor a church in America, <laughs> and you know there's a self-taught theologian, A. W. Tozer, and he he said this: you must do something about the cross. You will either flee from it in terror or you will die upon it, but you cannot ignore it. I think that in America, we have this idea that we can ignore it. Mm -hmm. That we don't have to make a decision. 
And the reality is the church in the East can't ignore the cross. You know, if you think about the cross, if you are a cross-carrying disciple, you know, the invitation that Jesus presents to, to all of us, you are either being crucified or you are crucifying someone. There is no in-between. And so Jesus obviously presents this as an invitation to step into his story, which is the story of death, burial, and resurrection. And so I like to say that a, a working definition of the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and our participation in it. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I've, that I've learned over the years, I think one of uh, um, the distinctions between Christians in America and Christians in the Middle East and in, 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 in countries where it's dangerous to, mm-hmm. to be a follower of Jesus One major difference is hunger. Christians in the East have a different kind of hunger for God than we do in the West. I was teaching a Bible study once in Turkey, and we were in this undisclosed location. It was outside of Istanbul, and we had rented this Restaurant, and we took over the restaurant for the day and turned it into a conference hall. And I was teaching a, a, a lesson, and it, we had gone on for six hours. Like, I was teaching a Bible study for six hours straight. And I'm, and I'm standing up in front of this small room, and... You know, six hours into this thing, I I lean on the table in front of me because I'm tired. (laughs) And there's an Iranian woman sitting at the table right near me. And she stretches her hand out and she touches me and she says, Pastor, please, don't be tired. Keep going. And so I'm like, yeah, you guys make it hard. <laughs> like, we're trying to get people to scan QR codes. <laughs> you know? Like, hey, can you come to small group? Can you, you know? And so, you know, one of the distinctions about hunger, one of the interesting things about hunger is that you can't do anything to make yourself hungry. Hunger is actually just a natural response of the body. The problem is that we're too full. You know, if you remember when, you know, the lockdowns first hit and we were all panicking, we were going to grocery stores, uh, you couldn't keep items on the shelves. There's something about crisis. Mm -hmm. When, Pastor Matt, when you asked if I would come and share, I began Mm -hmm. to pray about this and... I felt like the Lord gave me three what-if scenarios yeah. that I'd like to present. Love to hear them. And so these are, these are hypotheticals that I want to present to you today, but I want you to pray into and, and really walk away today with the discernment of whether or not these are, in fact, hypotheticals. Hmm. So the first one is this, that what if... Crisis doesn't cause us to lose our identities, but it actually is what allows us to find our identities. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, the worship leader, Travis, and, and yourself both stood here this morning and said something to all of us here, pointed out, looked at us, and said, you are the church. The building isn't the church. And I don't know if you guys felt it when, when they said that, but there was something different in that declaration 
than it was maybe a year ago. Like there's a, there's, a, there's a different level of depth that comes with that statement today. Why? Because we have been rocked. Like the, the church of America has been shaken. You know, I've had hundreds of conversations with pastors. I've traveled over 100,000 miles just in the past six months, you know, bringing awareness to the underground church. And there's two things that, you know, maybe with the ex exception of a few churches, but the major vast majority of churches and conversations that I've had have come to the realization of two things during this time. One, change isn't coming, change is here. Mm -hmm. Which means we're not waiting to go back to something. Like God is moving us into something. Mm -hmm. And then the second thing, we have a deep deficiency of discipleship in the American church. And it and has taken COVID, it has taken a global pandemic mm -hmm. to wake us up to that reality. The truth is that, you know, those of us that are like in, you know, positions in church and, and, and conversations, back rooms, like we've known it for years. <laughs> You know, you, you, you talk to most pastors and, and, and they readily acknowledge that. But there's something about when God brings us into that understanding corporately yeah. as a country and even as, mm -hmm. as a world that it, it, it's a game changer. Yeah. And so God is bringing us not into something new, but he's bringing us back to something very old. Mm -hmm. Something that he laid the foundation for. And when Jesus turns to his disciples in, in Luke 9 and 23 and says, if you would come after me, you must deny yourself and take up your cross daily. And follow me. If you want to be a disciple. You can read the gospels. And the funny thing is that you really. You, you won't find how to plant churches. Mm -hmm. But you will find how to make disciples. Mm -hmm. And churches are really nothing more. They should be nothing more than right. just biblically organized disciples. And so this is a wake-up call for us as a church, and I'm encouraged by the honesty. I'm encouraged by the hunger mm -hmm. that is very real today in the American church. What if God wants to judge us based off of the Great Commission? Now, I, I understand that that's, that that's a hard statement. I understand that, that it, it challenges our mm -hmm. theology, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Because we, we, we know that, you know, we're, we're saved by grace alone, through faith. Mm -hmm. We're not justified by works. But then we, we, do, we do wrestle with the words of James that says that faith without works is dead. Mm -hmm. And so what if, when you and I stand before Jesus, what if he measures our faith by our obedience? Mm -hmm. Obedience to the Great Commission. And so I think if, if we took a poll in most churches today in America, mm -hmm. and, we, and, we, and we asked Christians, have you participated in the Great Commission? Mm -hmm. And the Great Commission, it's, you know, some of you know it and recognize it. It's, it's Matthew 28. Is it okay to read Yeah, that? Yeah, absolutely. Matthew 28, verse 16. 
Jesus said, eat. then the 11 disciples, they, uh, they went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him there, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came and he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. What if God actually expects us to obey this? How, how many Christians in America have led another person to Jesus? How many have baptized another believer? How many have made a disciple? And what if we defined a disciple as someone who has also made a disciple? Mm -hmm. Like what if the metric was reproduction? I think you and I, I think we all know it would be a very low percentage of American Christians who have actually participated in the Great Commission. And the reason is because we have such great preachers and teachers like Pastor Matt that we don't have to do it. We just bring them to church and hope that his sermon is good enough. Hope that he can, you know, just land it and bring it home in such a way that they will respond. But, but what if evangelism was never intended to be like an event? Mm -hmm. And, and don't get me wrong, I, I, I'm not against evangelism events. We, we, we do the serve days. We, you know, but, but what if God was more interested in you sharing your life with people than he was with you sharing your faith with people? Yeah. And the inconvenience that it is to, yeah. to actually open up our lives. Yeah. You said you know, the vast majority of the people that we hang out with. Mm -hmm. Jesus sent out the disciples to be sheep among wolves, not sheep among sheep. Yeah. And if we're honest, we are sort of sheep among sheep. Mm -hmm. And you might be thinking to yourself, you know, I, I don't think that's fair. You're asking a lot. It's difficult to make a disciple. It's difficult to lead another person to the Lord. And, and I would believe you, except we have illiterate Afghan girls that are leading other illiterate Afghan girls to Jesus. You know, right now we have over 50 underground churches in Pakistan and you know that the movement in Pakistan is being led by two 18-year-old girls. So, yeah, it is difficult. And that's part of the reason that Jesus invites us into it. Yeah. And then the final what if... I'd love for you to just share about your small groups before you get yes. to your next what if. Perfect. Because that's awesome. So, right now in Iran, it's the fastest growing movement of Christianity in the world. And our leaders are training the leaders in Afghanistan. Afghanistan is the second fastest growing church in the world right now. And part of the reason why that the movement has exploded and is continuing to grow, we're at over 750 churches and counting. Part of the reason for that is because the, the model is the message. And what I mean by that is that we invite folks into small groups. And these are true small groups. We're talking three or four people. And when we sit in these small groups, we ask a series of questions. We ask four questions that are focused around Scripture. The last two questions that we ask 
is the reason that it's the fastest growing movement of Christianity in the world. And, and, and here are the two, the last two questions that we ask when we're meeting in small groups. We ask, if this is true, what are you gonna do? And then something amazing happens. We go around the group and we actually wait for them to give a statement. We call it an obedience statement. Hmm. And so someone might say, if this is true, I will forgive my brother-in-law for what he did. And we'll even press them. We'll say, okay, what does that look like? Hmm. And they'll say, well, that means I'm gonna, I'm gonna call them, I'm gonna, I'm gonna set up a meeting, a visit, and I'm gonna go and I'm gonna apologize to them. Mm-hmm. And then we write it down. And then the second, the, the, the last question that we ask before we dismiss the meeting is we say, who needs to hear this? It's the who will you tell. It's the evangelism piece. And keep in mind that these folks that are coming to these Bible studies, they are not believers. Like, they're close, but they have not made that full commitment. There hasn't been a change of allegiance just yet. Mm -hmm. The Holy Spirit is working in their hearts. And so... We'll ask the two questions. The following week when we come back to meet, we'll sit down with the group and we'll say, all right, so last week you said this. How did that go? Accountability. Mm-hmm. Last week you said you would tell your sister or your brother. How did that go? The accountability piece. And here's, this is, this is a, kind of a crazy approach, but if after three or four meetings, if the people that are coming to that group are not actually obeying, if they're not doing the things that they said they would do that are being initiated by the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. response to the Holy Spirit, the group is dissolved. And part of the reason for that is because one of the principles of the underground church is that Satan, one of his greatest tactics is to get you to spend time with people that don't actually have any intention of following Jesus and obeying Jesus. And so if he can fill your life with just people that don't really want to obey and don't really want to follow Jesus, that don't really take Jesus as king, then you can waste all your time and energy with those folks and he'll kill the movement. And so after three or four meetings, if they're not obeying, if there isn't any fruit Mm -hmm. of repentance and, you know, that's manifested through obedience, they shut the group down. That would be like, (laughs) Pastor... Imagine you guys show up to church on a Sunday morning and he gives a sermon and then somehow like there's a response where they got to, you know, Mm -hmm. text in Mm -hmm. the obedience statement. Like what is the Lord telling you to do based on the sermon and the text that you've heard today? And then when you return the next Sunday, you're actually held accountable. And if you're not obeying, what if Pastor Matt was like, well, then I'm not giving you a new sermon today. I'm going to repeat last week's sermon. Not opposed. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Last what if. What if requiring, what if building God's kingdom required you to bear yours? 
required me to bury mine. We have this, this couple on our team. They're from Minnesota. And they have three beautiful children. Blonde hair, blue-eyed. I mean, this is an all-American family. And they felt called to go to Somalia. Now, Somalia is the most dangerous nation on the planet today for Christians. It's also a sex trafficking hub. And so it is, uh, you know, the belly of the beast. And so they, they felt God calling them to this dark place. They announce it to their family and their family is devastated. And so they talk with us and they say, hey, we're, we're feeling a release from God to, to go. And, and, and we say to these folks, we say, look, we need you to write up an email and we need you in this email to, to, to write out in detail that you understand the risk. Like you need to spell this out that you realize that there's a high probability that one of your daughters may be abducted and sold into the sex slave. Like, this is a very real risk that we need to know you guys understand. And so we need you to spell that out for us. And so they, they, they write up this document and they send it to us. Later that evening, I get a voice memo and it's from the husband. And he says, we've sent you the email, but we also want you to know, we want, we want to share with you something else that we did. They said, God told us to take photographs of all of our family members, me, my wife, and my three daughters, and to go down to the cemetery that's near our house and to dig holes in the ground and to put our photographs in the ground and bury those pictures. God told us to hold a funeral for ourselves. This couple and their family is in Somalia right now. What if, in order to build God's kingdom, it requires that you bury yours? What are the castles that need to be buried? What are the dreams that need to be buried? What are the plans that need to be surrendered? What are the holes in the ground that need to be dug for you? What are the funerals that need to be had? So that God's kingdom can come. On Wednesday, I uh, chatted with Steve, and um, he told me that story. And, and I brought something this morning. Um, this is my shovel for when I go camping. I cleaned it off. Don't worry about it. But um, so I thought about that story, and I thought about it in the context of Jesus as king and the struggle that we have. I think there's some things that we need to bury in order for us to truly step into the life that Jesus is calling us into. I think that there's those of us in this room that need to dig some holes. And I think probably there's some things that are pretty common to us. I think there's some things that are pretty particular, maybe to individuals. And I don't know what that is, but I know that the Holy Spirit, if he is in you, can reveal those things if you wanna pretend you don't know what those are already. 
I mean, for some of us, maybe it is family that actually sits in place of Jesus in our lives and keeps us from doing the things that our king calls us to do. I think for a lot of us, it's time to dig a hole and bury our freedom. Because I think for many of us, our freedom is more important than King Jesus. I think some of us have dreams. I think some of us have, have all kinds of things. And so I, I brought this because I wanted to illustrate and, and that, that I, I think it's really fitting that God has us at this moment, at this point. Because here today on Palm Sunday, we, it begins Easter week, that we remember this triumphal entry as Jesus as king into Jerusalem and then we, his, his pathway to the cross and his crucifixion on Friday and the hopelessness on Saturday because we really don't believe Jesus when he says he's gonna rise from the dead. And then on Sunday when Jesus, there's this empty tomb. I think it's fitting that we're going into the week where we, we remember and we celebrate Christ giving up his life and being buried for us. And I think it makes sense that maybe this week we should think about and we should take action on the things that we need to bury that have been obstacles in Jesus being king in our lives and our obedience to what he's calling us to do. And so my challenge for you this week is both internal and external. I believe that God, since Jesus said it, Wants, to, wants his church to be the conduit that his kingdom is expanded in on this planet. But I think there's some things that we need to deal with as individuals and we need to bury. And so this week, my, my, my ask is that you, with complete vulnerability, ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you the things that you need to bury and as he reveals those things, I want you to take something that might symbolize those things, and I want you to take a shovel, and I want you to go somewhere, whether it's in your backyard or somewhere, I don't know, I mean, maybe there'll be too many holes in your backyard, but maybe your backyard, but, but, but go somewhere with a shovel and dig a hole and lay that thing down and bury it. Just like Jesus' body was buried so many years ago this Friday. Because in order to experience a resurrection, there has to be a funeral. And I think it's time, I think now is the time God has our attention. And I think he's saying there's some things that you need to bury. The question is, are you willing to? It's likely not going to Somalia. It might be just bearing your very vocal thoughts about masks. You'd think that'd be an easy thing to bury, but it's not. And so this morning, I'm gonna invite the band to come back up and they're gonna close and we're gonna worship together. And as we do, here's the thing that we need to remember. The only thing standing in the way of the kingdom of God growing and expanding today is the things that we are holding on to and won't let go of because we are too attached to them. Jesus has already defeated all the enemies of the kingdom of God and he sits on the throne as king. And so the only hurdle, the only obstacles, we have the power to bury and we have the power to step in to what God is doing. Jesus, I thank you for this morning and I pray 
that we will take this challenge seriously, God. I pray that we would open our lives up to your spirit and God, that we would bury that which keeps us from obedience to you. Holy Spirit, work in us and give us a vision of what can happen when we are willing to deny ourselves and take up the cross and follow Jesus as our Savior and as our King. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint. Point.